everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Happy to be back with you guys teaching. Uh, be able to open God's Word together and uh, go over Scripture, be able to teach, do what I love to do, do it with you guys. Hey, listen, if you're here for the first time and you have no idea who I am, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here of the high school at Maranatha. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, if this is your first time, we are so glad that you're here with us and joining us this morning. Uh, you're very welcome here. We appreciate you, and we hope that you would come back. Uh, and, and be involved and feel welcome here uh, enough to want to come back. Um, for those that are here and our regular attenders, welcome back. Thank you guys for being here today. I appreciate you guys. Love you guys. And um, I'm excited to be able to, again, open up God's Word together and today uh, look at a pretty interesting and, and rich story. Uh, we had just finished a series. Last week, we had a combined service. Um, and for the next two weeks, we're going to be doing a, a small series here uh, before we actually have another combined service. Um, but in the meantime, I do want to go over maybe what I believe to be and what I think is understood to be the most, I would say, famous uh, or well-known parables of Jesus. And you may know this parable. I'm sure that you do. Um, John MacArthur, a, a pastor that you probably know as well, um, he regards this or says this about this parable. He says this is one of, if not the most inexhaustible parables of Jesus, meaning that it is incredibly rich, meaning that it is full of meaning and purpose behind it. And yet, at the same time, even a child can grasp its most basic of truths. And this parable that we'll be looking at Again, just like any other part of God's Word, it's important that we look at the context and understand the manner in which this was said, who it was said to, when it was written, to whom it was written, um, and of course, originally uh, spoken to by Jesus himself. All those things help us to understand what the story really means and the significance of it, right? I think it's important that we stress that every single time that we look at the context, and this is no different just because it's a parable, just because it's a story, it doesn't change, right? The Bible itself is not a new innovation. It's not new. It's not something that we created here in Western America. It is not a Western book. It's not a new book that was recently published, but it is an ancient book that was written thousands of years ago in a completely different location during a completely different time. So it's important that we know those things as we read the story, as we hear Jesus teach the story, uh, in order to really understand the nuances, the details, the, the small things that we see here in this book and what they represent to the audience of that time. Because what it means to those people, what Jesus is saying to those people and how they understood it is what it should mean to us. It's how we should understand it. And that goes for anything that we read in God's word. So that's something that we should be applying every time we open up God's word and, seem, and, and look to understand what God is saying. And again, that's no different for us today. So I'm not going to attempt to modernize this story. That, that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be the case with anything that we do. 
um, here uh, when we open up God's word, but I'm not going to attempt to modernize the story. I want to look at this parable with you guys, as you guys can see on the screen, um, and understand what it meant to those people and what Jesus was really, te- what Jesus was telling them, what he was communicating at the time. If you remember a few months ago, um, feels like months now, probably months now, we did another series that was uh, looking at our um, our faith, the basics of our faith specifically. It was entitled Roots, and one of those messages, I think, if I'm not mistaken, if, I, if I'm not wrong, it's the first message that we did in that series, it was talking about discipleship, and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in that chapter, in Luke 14, Jesus, he is speaking to a great crowd, and this great crowd accompanied him, we find that in verse 25, And that day he is speaking on the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. And as he goes around, as he teaches these people, he is challenging them on really uh, difficult things. He's challenging them on their commitment to Christ. Some of the things that he said and some of the things that we went over that day, if you were here and you remember, he talks about how they are to put him first. He talks about how they're to be cross bearers, right? To pick up their cross, to to surrender and die to themselves and live for the Lord. And we looked at the context of what that represented and the, 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 the implications of what he was saying at that time to those people. And then lastly, he says, you must count the cost. You must count the cost. And, and that's something that you would think would drive away a lot of sinners, right? A lot of people hear that message and be like, well, I have, to put Lord, I have to put the Lord first. I have to put Christ first. I have to die to myself, put everything I want to do aside and live for Jesus. I have to count the cost. I have to do all those things. And you know what? I, I don't want to do that. And you would think the presumption or uh, the, the, the assumption would be that that's the case, but it's not. If you continue to read in the chapter we're going to be in this morning in Luke 15, we find that these sinners actually drew near to him. After hearing this message, these people came to him. They, they, they wanted to learn more. Understand how they can do those things. And it's this crowd, these people that Jesus is talking to in the passage we're going to be reading this morning. This is the people that he is talking to. In, in verses 1 and 2, we see the crowd, and we have some insight into who was in attendance for this parable, who was listening in, who was in the audience. We'll see it will be on the screen, verses 1 and 2. We see that there are tax collectors there. There are sinners. But amongst the audience we also see that there are Pharisees and scribes, right? And Pharisees and scribes, they are influential leaders at that time. They, they had a lot of a respect. Um, they had reputation. Um, they had credibility. They followed the law to a T. They knew the law. They knew the, the first couple of chapters of the Bible. For us, it's difficult to memorize a verse today. They knew five books of the Bible. And these people, they were at this point in Jesus' ministry indifferent to Jesus. They did not care, or even more so, they were actually hostile towards Jesus. They didn't like or support what he was doing. Jesus, uh, as a matter of fact, would regularly, um, he would regularly challenge them on their hypocrisy. He would, he would suggest that they did not truly know God He would say that their corruption would lead to judgment, and of course, although he said all these things with grace, you would imagine and you can assume that these people did not take that lightly. 
right? People that had this level of credibility um, and, and, and self-pride even, um, to hear him teach that and say that to them, they did not take that too well. And so, out of spite, these Pharisees and these scribes, they would try to diminish or um, tarnish Jesus' credibility. They'd say that the things that he was doing, the works that he was doing is actually the work of the devil. And the way that they would support those claims, the things that they would say and do was actually point to the people that he would surround himself with. To support the message that they're, 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 they're proclaiming, they would point to the, the sinners that Jesus would associate with. Jesus would regularly associate with these kind of people that you see here, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, criminals, sinners of every kind. And Jesus would gather with them. He would commune with them. And that's why you read here, as they witnessed him do this, they grumbled. They grumbled and they said, hey, Jesus, he receives sinners and he eats with them. Every time this would happen, they would use this as ammunition to discredit him, discredit his ministry, and discredit everything that he was saying. And that's why they do it this time. It's no different. And eating back then, when you ate with somebody, it was actually a, a gesture or a sign of approval. And these people... These leaders of Jesus' day, a lot of them divided humanity into two different classes, the righteous, which they would put themselves in, and the unclean, these people. And they did everything they could, and for the most part, they lived their lives as best as they could to live in complete separation from these kinds of people, from the unclean. And there was actually rabbis, so much so, that they would refuse to teach God's word to these unclean people. And so when you see that they are hearing or seeing and witnessing that Jesus is eating with these people, you can understand why they are so taken aback and, and why they have this, um, why, this ha- why they have this perspective and, and why they think poorly, perhaps, of Jesus. And yet Jesus, we know, he came for the lost. And he says this time and time again, that he came to save the lost. And that's why he does this. And that's why he reiterates this in his response to them. Before we get into the parable that we'll be reading today, Jesus actually responds and and actually goes over two different parables before he gets to the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus, he responds by first sharing about the parable of the lost sheep, and he shares about the parable of the lost coin. And from these two parables, we see that heaven rejoices with the one sinner who repents, the recovery of sinners. And before we get into the uh, parable of the prodigal son, we see in these two stories, and they illustrate uh, two things for us. They illustrate the recovery of a lost sheep, and they illustrate the recovery of a lost coin. In the parable of the prodigal son, we see an illustration of a story of a lost sinner, but it goes even beyond that. And the story is not just about this one son, the prodigal son, but it's actually about two sons. The parable of the prodigal son is about two brothers as opposed to one. And that's essential for us to really understand what Jesus is saying. If we're to understand this parable, we have to know that this parable is not about this one son that we are so um, 
well accustomed to hearing about, but it's actually about two brothers. Today, for the sake of time, we're going to be drawing our attention to one of them. We're going to be looking at the younger brother, the one in whom we associate the title of this parable with. And we're going to read a little bit this morning about his story and his perspective, his side of the story. If you have your Bibles with me, please turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. We're going to read it together. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it really quick. And then we're going to go over it verse by verse, and those will be on the screen as we try to understand what's actually going on. All right? So let me pray for us. It's Luke, again, Luke 15, verse 11. We're going to go all the way to 24. This is what it says, what Jesus says. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that has come into me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose And he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this was my son, dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Again, for the sake of today's message, we're going to stop there. We're going to stop at verse 24. There is a lot more here that we have to unpack, and that is why I urge you that if you're here this morning, if you're listening, that you are present for the second half of this message. The, the second half of this message, as we look at the other brother, is essential to understanding this parable. I would say, and I believe, uh, the whole point of it is really to address the other brother. The most crucial part about this parable is the older brother. So today, it is important that we're understanding the younger brother and his perspective and his side of things, but there is a incredible message that is to be learned with the second half of this story, so please do not miss it. I urge you to come back and to hear this message because it is very important for us. It's about the older brother, and he is the other essential figure here in the story. Another key figure in the story is this loving father that we see, right? And then, of course, the figure that we're going to be looking at this morning is the younger brother. Again, the one whom we know to be the, the person that this parable is titled after, right? The prodigal son. But let me ask you this. If I were to ask you here, anybody this morning, if you could tell me, what does the word prodigal mean? Could anybody tell me? 
Anybody? Prodigal. Prodigal? Uh, yeah? <laughs> no, the furthest thing from it. Prodigal. Prodigal means somebody that is uh, incredibly wasteful. Somebody that is extravagantly wasteful. Somebody that is um, spending their money and their resources recklessly. That's what it means to be prodigal. And, and prodigal isn't a word that Jesus actually says in the story to describe the son. It's an older English word that we kind of associate with this story, but it's something that we use because it perfectly encapsulates what this younger brother is. He's reckless, wasteful, um, uh, just has no self-control, uh, foolish. And so that's why we call him the prodigal son. He's self-indulgent. Now, as we read this story, as Jesus is teaching this parable, the first thing that we find, apart from the fact that Jesus says there are two brothers, and a lot of us miss that, he says something along these lines. Well, he says these words exactly, as a matter of fact. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. The first thing we find is a request. The first thing we see here is a request made by the younger brother to his father. And let me explain the significance of this request. In other translations, it is, give me the share of the state that falls to me. Now, this is a bizarre request. It is a pretty interesting request that he's making, and pretty wild. If you understand uh, the context in which this is being taught, if you understand the culture back then, this is a pretty shameful thing to ask. It, it is a, um, this would be something you would be looked down upon for doing. Um, this is something that was shocking and appalling. When they hear, the audience hears this request, they probably would have been shocked. They probably would have been confused as to why anybody's asking that. The reason being, they were amazed that he would ask such a request, and especially the scribes and the Pharisees, is because this, this young boy, this guy who was probably around your age, right? We, we don't know much about him, but we can assume because he's a younger brother. He's young, he's single, as we've seen here. But he is asking his father for something in an incredibly disrespectful way. What he is asking him is for his inheritance, He's asking for his, uh, his share of his father's property, his father's goods, his father's land, um, everything that is set to come to him once his father passes, right? His inheritance, what he would gain on the, with the passing of his father, he is asking for that in advance. He's asking for the one-third that was due to him, right? Understand, again, he is the younger brother, meaning one-third of what he has goes to him, two-thirds goes to his older brother. Being the older brother, being the firstborn, you would get double. So he would get two-thirds, and the younger brother would get one-third. He is asking his father, hey, let's just, let's just skip all of this. Let's, let's just fast-forward and just give to me what's mine now. Essentially, why they would have been so taken aback by this request is because essentially is what he's saying, hey, I just wish you were dead. I wish you were dead just so I had my things. I just want my stuff. I don't really care about you. 
I don't care about this family. I just want my things. I want the stuff that you can give me. By making this request, again, he wishes his father was dead. And the only way he really sees his father is really as a barrier or a wall to what he really wants. He doesn't love his father. He doesn't care for his father. This request shows that. He only wants his father for his father's things. And by asking his father, we, we get insight to that. Now, as followers of Jesus, as believers, um, I would say that, of course, we are held to the same standard that we ought to honor our father and our mothers, right? We have that responsibility. We are called to do that. But I will say this. Unfortunately, our culture today is far from the same level of consideration that this culture has in regards to respect and honor. The people back then, right, during this time, this is a culture, right, these Jewish people, this is a culture that's built on the law. This is a culture that's built on those commandments. That's like what's, it, what's in charge. That's, you know, th- their governance is these laws. And for somebody, right, to go in and to break a law like that, and, and let, let's bear in mind that socially as well, socially this would have been a commandment that is highly regarded, if not regarded as the most important command to follow. This son is going to his father and, and blatantly disrespecting him and, and wishing that he was dead. And that's why, again, we see the response that the people would have had. Right? The expectation for this father uh, to react, you know, the expectation was for this father to react in a way that would actually be something like this. He would probably slap his son in the face he would probably um, meet him with some verbal and physical blows. Um, and a request like that would mean that you're probably cast out of the family, probably cut off from the family, and in a lot of cases actually deemed to be dead. Right? You, you would die to the family. And, and as a matter of fact, we have some insight as we continue to read that that was a way that his father actually describes his son, that his son was dead. So we have we have some idea of what that, that, that would have been the case in this context as well. But as we continue to read, although we see a very disrespectful and very um, shameless request, and although the audience would have been stunned by such requests, what would have probably stunned them even more was the response they heard. When Jesus follows up, this request that the son made, he, he gives them a response that they would have probably not expected. Jesus says that the father actually went and he divided his property between them. And the word for property here is this word bios in Greek, which is the, manner, the language it was written in. Um, and that word bios, it means life. It means lifespan. It means life story even. So he's asking his father to take his whole life, everything he has worked for, all that he had, everything that his family before him had, had, had worked for, everything, something that his, his life hinged on, everything, and just give it to him. Give him his share. And his father did. His father gathered everything, everything he owned, and he took one-third of it, and he gave it to his son. 
He gave his son his inheritance without any obligation, without any responsibility. Remember again, an inheritance you would receive naturally once your father had passed. But once you had that land, once you had the inheritance, your responsibility was to take care of that stuff. Your responsibility was to look after all that stuff and continue on what your father had done. You had that responsibility, but now he actually has his portion with none of that responsibility because his father is still in control of everything. So he, he, he just has the, the wealth and, and all of the benefits without having to work for anything his father just handed to him. Father gives it over to him. He gives it to him because his son wants his freedom. And the father in this story, I think, is important for us to highlight and understand that it, it, it is God. It represents God. He represents God. And here we see clearly illustrated God's love. The son here, he represents the sinner. It makes it very evident that there is no existing relationship present. Now with this request, I think it's safe to say that the father knew that the son made a foolish and greedy request. There's no denying that. Yet he allowed him to go on nonetheless. And for me, one of the things that the the story here doesn't really explain, but it it kind of does in some ways, is the the reaction I think the son would have had. I kind of think about that, and that, that piques my interest a little bit. Um, but I just imagine approaching your father and asking such an audacious request and then hearing that, right? The only thing that we really know for certain is that once he did hear it, he was out pretty quickly. And, And that I can relate to, that I understand, that I can, that I can try to put in my own mind what that would have been like. You know, for me, for example, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but one of the things I always did growing up is I always had sleepovers with my cousin. I always went out. Um, he either came over to my house or I went to his house. Uh, we were really good friends. And, of course, if we wanted to hang out and spend some time with each other, that was what we had to do. Right? We didn't have the luxury of the Internet or technology that you guys have today and that I utilize today. You know, if I wanted to play video games with my cousin, I actually had to sit down next to him. I couldn't just, you know, do it online or whatever. And, and, and so we... We would obviously love to spend time with one another, but there was a lot of times where my mother, before they either came over, we had a family gathering at our house, or we had a family gathering at their house. Several, on several occasions, she would always say, hey, don't even bother asking me if you can sleep over or if your cousin can sleep over at our house because the answer is no. Don't even bother. Don't even try asking because the answer is no. You either did this, you did that, you have bad grades, you don't deserve it, yada, 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 X, Y, and Z. Don't ask. And without fail, every single time, I would ask. Always. Every time. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. You guys all have parents. They always told you no, but you ask anyways. And if one of them says no, what do you do? You go to the other one. And I always ask. I always ask. Always ask mom and dad. Dad says no, I go to mom. Now, there's a lot of the times where the answer would stay no. And because I asked and kept insisting, I got into more trouble. However, there were times 
miraculously, um, uh, that she said yes. And let me tell you, when my mom said yes, I didn't waste a second, right? If my mom said yes, even though she had said she would say no before, if she said yes, me and my cousin didn't waste a second. If I was at his house, we would run up, pack his stuff, and get ready to go. If we were at my house, I would run up, pack my stuff, and get ready to go. I wouldn't waste a second because I did not want to stand there and wait for her to change her mind. And so I would pack everything and get ready. And so when I read here that it says not many days later, the only thing I can imagine is the son To make such a crazy request, he must have had some kind of apprehension. He must have been worried at least a little bit, or maybe he didn't care, whatever it was. When he heard his father's response, he didn't waste a second. It took him only a few days to get everything that his father owned. And what does it say he does? The younger son, he gathered all that he had. And when it says that he gathered everything, it's it's alluding to the fact that he starts to sell everything. He gets rid of everything. He flips everything. Everything that he owns, everything that his father had given him, he starts giving it away, starts selling it, selling it, and makes it all into cash, gets monetary value for all of it so that he can leave and run away. Doesn't waste a second. And he goes, and he goes not to the city next door where he has his his friends, his boys that are going to hang out with him. No, he goes to a faraway land so that nobody can know of what he has done or what he has asked. And nobody cares about what he is going to do. And here, as he is away, this is where we see his rebellion. Here we see that as he arrives in this faraway land, what happens? He squanders everything that he had with reckless living. He spends it all on people, on his lustful and sinful desires. And all of a sudden, after having thrown it all away, after having trashed his life, after blowing it all on worldly and sinful things, he was alone. And in this crowd, there were several people, as we alluded to, and we saw early on in the chapter, there were tax collectors, there were criminals, prostitutes, outcasts, all of these sinners who had lived lives of immorality and disdain for God. Their only concern, sinners' only concern, was giving into their own selfish and sinful desires. But as we know, sin isn't really quite what it seems. And as you continue to read, you start to see what his life becomes. He had these goals. He had these hopes. Man, he had so much to look forward to, and just like that, it was gone. And we find that he is now alone after all of these people have taken advantage of him for his foolishness. When he has nothing left to offer to anybody, after he has nothing left to give, he's left alone And on top of that, we read here that there is a severe famine. Now for us, that's just okay, there's no food, great. Think about an area, a a wild land, right, with no food and people are fighting to survive. You can imagine and you can best believe there is cannibalism happening here because there's not enough food to go around. So imagine somebody, a young man who is by himself in the middle of nowhere, has nobody to watch his back. He's by himself and alone. During a time that is violent, 
So you must think and must believe he is terrified for his life. And what does he do? He attaches himself to somebody else. And he still, at rock bottom, does not want to own up to his actions. He still will not face his own reality. And instead, what he tries to do is he tries to fix things on his own. He tries to come up with a plan to solve things on his own. And sinners, they tend to have a, a, a tendency to do this, to run from God. And you end up bankrupt, empty, with nothing. And yet, the, the immediate reaction is always to try to pick yourself back up and try to do things in your own strength. But we see here in the story what happened to this young man when he tries to do that. He ended up in a field of pigs. He ended up amongst pigs. And, and again, please remember that this is a specific audience that believes and would have understood this to be the lowest of lows. In this culture, you did not associate or touch pigs. Right? This is a Jewish culture. This is unkosher. This is an unclean animal. This is, this is a man that's not only just touching pigs. This is a man that is now standing amongst them. He is now fighting them to eat their food. He's, imagine that. Imagine yourself hunching over, crouching over, fighting off a bunch of swine all over the place so you can eat the slob and, and the pods that we see here. That's how hungry this man is. That, that is what he has to resort to. Jesus here, he's at this point painted the most despicable picture imaginable. Imagine a son, ultimately a sinner, who's rebelled not against the law, but a relationship with his father. Sin blinds us as it has the younger son. And only when all of his plans and ideas are exhausted does he finally confront his own foolishness and devise a plan to go home. Following his request, following his rebellion, he decides to go home to return. And when he is in the lowest of lows, when he is at rock bottom, when he is amongst these pigs eating their food, he remembers what it was like at his father's house. In verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. But we see that that doesn't intend, but we see that he doesn't intend to return and uh, pick up where he left off. In verse 18, it actually says that he will say to his father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one as your hired servants. So bear in mind here, this is not even a slave, right? A slave would live and work at the estate itself. This is a hired worker. This is somebody that does, doesn't live there. He lives uh, off the property, off the land, and yet he earns a wage. He is working for the owner. He understands here, and, and his thinking is that with all of his guilt and all of his shame, he could never be a son again. That would not suffice. It couldn't be so. There must be some compensation, some reparation required. He doesn't want to come back as a son. Being a son again was off the table for him. He didn't believe he was worthy of it. 
So he wanted to pay him back. So he puts together this plan and he starts to head back to his father. And we see that Jesus says here that when his father saw them from a distance away, he reacted in a very unique manner. But before we get there, I want to ask you this. How do you think that this father thought? Realistically speaking, what do you think? If I hadn't shown you, if maybe we haven't gone over this message yet, what do you think his reaction would be when he sees his son in the distance? Remember again, this is somebody, right? His son, who he thought and believed to be dead to him. He didn't know what was going on in his life. This son didn't love him. He only loved his things. And yet he has the goal, in some sense, to come back to his father. What do you think his reaction would have been? Now let me ask you this. If you are here today and you've been running from God all of your life, if you have never really cared about a relationship with him, if instead you have rebelled against him, if you have been living a life for yourself, indulging in things that you yourself want to do, everything you do, everything you think about is for yourself, how do you think that God looks at you? How do you think that God sees you when he looks in your direction? Again, remember that in this story, Jesus tells us his heart for the lost. When he sees us, when he sees those who are rebelling and running from him, it's not with rage, it's not with anger. When he looks in your direction, as the father looks at his son, God reacts in the same way. He says, his father saw him and felt compassion. If you're in the crowd today and you're here this morning and you've heard this for the first time, Jesus is showing us who the father is. And he says here that if you have been rejecting him, denying him, even at your worst, God looks at you and feels compassion. The father felt compassion for his son. And he didn't just feel compassion. It actually says that he ran to him. He ran to his son. That's not something that was customary here either. For somebody that had the reputation this father had to shout out Pastor Jacob last week, to gird up his loins, to lift up his skirt, to show his legs, and to run. It's not something that they did. Kids did that. Young people did that. A woman might even do that, but a, but a man, an elderly man, a, a, a father in this case, that was not normal and customary for him to do that, and yet he did that. And not only did he run, he hugged him. He hugged his son. It says that he fell on his neck. It says that he embraced him. And you would imagine that at this point, again, the, 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 the crowd would again be shocked and revolting. Like, so you're telling me this and this happened and now he's back and the father hugs him? Does he not know that he was just with pigs? These unclean animals? This son is unclean. What is he doing touching this kid? And although they're appalled, I think Jesus drives home this point even further. He actually looks at them and, and he says he didn't just hug them. He kissed his son. He hugged and he kissed him. And while he was doing this, the son, again, he tried to explain to his father his heart, his plan, and say, hey, father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he could even finish, the father said this, 
Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The son returns and immediately he is reinstituted. He is a son again. He is instantly embraced. There were no prerequisites. There was nothing that had to be done. The father didn't come up to him and say, hey, are you changed? Are you going to promise never to do that again? Are you going to make sure that you're going to work hard to regain my trust? Um, do you love me? Uh, are you going to prove it to me? Hey, go clean up yourself before I actually embrace you. There, there was nothing that he said, no prerequisites here. Immediately, it says that he was a son again. The father ordered that the best that he had be given to his son. That wasn't something that he would give to any servant. He, he gave it to him and reinstituted him as his son. The things that he had were the marks of a son. And while he intended to earn his way back, this gracious father, he granted it to him. And let me finish with this. Some people are like the younger brother in this story. We want everything that God provides, but not God himself. Those who want their freedom to do selfishly uh, what they desire, their independence. But like the father here in the story who represents God, God wants a relationship with you. At some point or other, all of us were the younger brother in this story, lost. Maybe you have a relationship with the father today, but maybe you don't. Maybe you're in the crowd and you never have. I wanna tell you that if you come to him, like the son in this story who comes home, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, who you are and what you look like, he is gracious and loving and he has compassion on you and you are forgiven and you are accepted. If you turn to him, just like the father in this story, he runs to you and meets you with grace. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you again for this time that we have together um, to just be able to open up your word together and, and, and know that you are a good and loving God who is gracious and, and merciful and forgiving, who welcomes us with open arms when we come to you. Um, thank you, Father, for this truth and for showing that to us, revealing that to us through your Son. I pray that we would, if if, if we've been running from you and living a life of rebellion and refusing to turn to you, denying you, I pray that you would speak to those hearts this morning um, and, and draw them close to you, Lord. We thank you again for all that you do, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, thank you guys. Good morning uh, at Citizen. You guys are the best. Hope you guys have a great day.